You're listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy. Welcome back, Grounded listeners. It's been a while since our last episode, and things have certainly changed. While Odo's office remains closed to the public given the COVID-19 pandemic, our services are open, and we hope you're hanging in there and staying safe. We're back this month with a new episode, so we can bid a fond farewell to one of the Oregon Department of Energy's longest tenured employees, Ken Niles. Ken is our Assistant Director for Nuclear Safety and Emergency Preparedness, and after 31 years at the agency, Ken will begin his very well-earned retirement at the end of August. Grounded listeners will remember Ken from a series of early episodes about the Hanford nuclear site and Oregon's role in the cleanup. Now, Ken joins us. Remotely, of course, so please forgive any audio challenges. For a few final words on his tenure at Odo, his experience over the last three decades, and what's to come for Oregon and the Hanford cleanup. So Ken, here we are. It's the end of an era. Here we are. Here we are. Your very final podcast episode of Grounded, because you are retiring. Yes, I am. How do you feel about that? It's uh, it's a little surreal, and it's been a been a long time. I've been working for the agency, and and uh, I should say so. Yeah. How many years has it been? Thirty-one years. Thirty-one years. That is not insignificant. I feel like I'm still in denial about it, which I'm going to have to get over because it's the end of the month. August 31st is your last day, right? That's my last day, yes. Well, so you've been with Odo for over 30 years. Um, tell me about the agency. What was it like when you when you first joined back in the early 90s, right? Uh, 1989. So a couple things come to mind in terms of just differences between now and then. Uh, when I started, the Trojan nuclear plant was operating. Uh, we had, the agency had two resident engineers who uh, helped regulate the plant. We had a, a really active nuclear emergency preparedness program because the plant was in Oregon, after all. And then uh, the second big difference is uh, when I look at the work of our siting division, uh, there was no wind power development in 1989. There was no solar power development in 1989. Uh, the growth that was occurring in terms of energy generation was uh, strictly in uh, limited really to uh, gas-fired power plants. And um, so some some pretty significant differences between now and then. I should say so. I, I didn't think about that, that Trojan was still producing power, although it, it closed not long after that, right? Closed in uh, December of 92, it was shut down and it uh, was officially closed the following month. So one of the things that we do at Odo is prepare for emergency drills in case something happens at Hanford or the nearby Columbia Generating Station. Is that something that was always in place, uh, like when Trojan was running, or when did Odo start doing that? It was uh, it was kind of a gradual thing. The uh, frankly, the U.S. Department of Energy, in terms of its Hanford operations, really wasn't interested in engaging with Oregon on that. They would do a uh, a planning map that would show, typically uh, a nuclear emergency planning map would show a circle around an area. And uh, we called theirs the flat tire because it, when it got to the Oregon border, it flattened out and followed the 
the line of the state border as if uh, that border would prevent anything from coming into uh, to Oregon. <laughs> so it was not until the 19, early 1990s that we actually got the U.S. Department of Energy to to agree that Oregon did have a, a legitimate interest and legitimate role. And Columbia Generating Station, uh, really, they were required by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to uh, to engage with us as well. So can you set the scene for what we knew about Hanford at the time when you started in 1989? You know, what did we know or what did we think we knew? When I look back at the documents from that era and really going back a few years before uh, I started, there was uh, really um, a, a really lack of appreciation for how big the job ahead was. Even though in, in 1989, when the U.S. Department of Energy signed its cleanup agreement with the state of Washington and the Environmental Protection Agency, and they set a 30-year cleanup uh, schedule, and they knew that there was, you know, a lot of uncertainty built into that. And, and you would think, wow, 30 years, that's a long time. You can get a lot done, and that, that should be more than uh, sufficient. But uh, <laughs> it really hasn't proven to be the case. Uh, the, the problems are far more complex, uh, much more expensive. Uh, there have been some, you know, there have been some bad decisions along the way, and hindsight are easy to easy to see now, weren't so easy at the time to see, uh, but it certainly has prolonged the cleanup. Uh, the tank waste at Hanford is is far much more complex than I think anyone could have envisioned back at the very beginning. You know, there's something kind of poetic about that, that when you first started, they thought cleanup would take 30 years, and here we are 30 years later at your retirement, and back then we thought, We'd be done. And we're not done. And we're not <laughs> you know, done. We're not even close to being done. Given that Oregon isn't an official regulatory authority over Hanford, what was the focus of your job? It was really, there were several aspects to it. You know, one was to, to really be, a, provide some oversight on behalf of Oregon and its citizens and, and the Columbia River to to try and make sure that the decisions that are being made are are truly protective of us, uh, and not just now, but but you know into the indefinite future. There, in, especially in recent years, there's been a lot of of monetary pressure on the Hanford cleanup, though it's been there all along. And sometimes it seems as though the the default or the easy decision is to do something that's uh, cheaper, uh, maybe less protective into the future. And so, um, you know, when, when we see that, we have to call them on it and provide some, you know, solid technical and policy level reasons why maybe that's not the way to go. Um, through the years we've had, um, and, and really beginning with my predecessors, I think we, Oregon has positioned itself, uh, you know, we're not going to just run out and call a news conference and say what bad decisions are making. I mean, we, we try and and work with the, the, the regulators in the U.S. Department of Energy. We try to provide, you know, solid technical advice and solid policy advice. And, you know, sometimes it gets us a long way, sometimes it doesn't. And, and sometimes we do need to go run and call a news conference or 
run to our congressional delegation and say, you know, we're really concerned about some of the things that are happening up there. And, you know, that's been the main thing is really trying to provide that, that independent oversight in a rationed manner. Uh, we've also looked at areas that we felt that we could make a, a true difference. Public involvement materials, I think, and, and engaging with the public is an area that I, I think we've been very strong at in the past 30 years, 40 years, really, in terms of explaining what's going on at Hanford and, and in a manner that's understandable. And a lot of the materials that we produced uh, that explain what's going on at Hanford, you know, have been well received by the activist groups and by the U.S. Department of Energy and by the regulators. And when all those different groups like your materials, you know that you're hitting the right mark in terms of accuracy and fairness. Uh, we've also found, I think, a, a niche to really push hard on transportation safety of radioactive materials. Uh, when you look at the, the shipments that have been made out of Hanford in the past and shipments that will occur again in the next decade or decades to come, uh, a lot of those go through Northeast Oregon, which if you've ever driven on Cabbage Hill or Lad Canyon, you know that, uh, that bad weather can happen very quickly. And so working with other Western states uh, and the U.S. Department of Energy, we were able to develop uh, a transportation plan for certain shipments that takes into account things like bad weather and uh, some other things important to us. So we've, we've looked for places we could, we think, make a difference, and those have been a few of those areas. I think that's really important. And for those listeners who, you know, maybe are tuning in for the first time, I'd encourage them to go back and listen to some of our earlier podcast episodes where you really dove into the situation at Hanford, what's been done, what still needs to be done. Um, it's really good listening and it's really helpful, I think, for Oregonians who may not otherwise understand Hanford and the fact that it can or could affect Oregon. Um, and I think it's, it's also really a testament to your longtime leadership that we are not a regulatory authority. We're that nearby state where, you know, we're the flat tire part of it, where they didn't necessarily think about how it would affect us. But your leadership and those before you and those who will come after you um, will really make sure that that legacy lives on and that what matters to Oregon is taken into account at this huge environmental cleanup. Thank you. Right. Uh, you know, I think that, that there's no doubt Oregon has a role. We, we uh, everyone at Hanford recognizes, you know, Oregon has an interest, you know, it's the Columbia River is, you know, both states and, and our people are potentially at risk if things are not done correct there. So it took a while to get there. Uh, but I think at least that hurdle is has uh, been met. And, uh, and just in terms of Oregon's place is is not in question any longer. So Ken, when you think about the Hanford cleanup, in the past 30 years, how do you feel about it? Do you feel hopeful? Do you feel frustrated? Is it kind of a mix of both? It's it's a mix of uh, both and, and many other emotions and thoughts. Um, you know, there, Hanford typically doesn't get in the news unless something bad is happening. And so I know that that certainly influences people's perception of what's going on at Hanford. Um, and there have been, there have been problems, there have been bad decisions, there have been mismanagement and 
you know, cost overruns and all of those things. But there's also been a lot of progress. And if you look at the site today compared to 30 years ago, uh, for the most part, the, the immediate risk issues have been resolved. Uh, it's a, it's a safer place in terms of, you know, our perspective from Oregon, you know, 35 miles away. It's a safer place, a much safer place than 30 years ago because they've, they did do a lot of things to, to clean up, to reduce risk, to get rid of some things that, uh, you know, that for lack of a better term could have gone boom. Um, there's, there's a lot less of those things today. And, and those things do get lost a lot of the times. There's a lot less to do, uh, a lot more to do. You know, some people say, well, they've done all the easy stuff, all the hard stuff still to come. You know, that's not entirely true. They've done some pretty hard stuff already. There's definitely is still some really hard stuff to do. And it's it just really is hard to comprehend the scope and the breadth of the cleanup and the mess that was made of 45 years of plutonium production. We've we've taken a lot of people up to the Hanford site through the years, a lot of legislators. We have an advisory board called Oregon Hanford Cleanup Board. Uh, we've taken some other folks. Uh, and when they actually get on the site and they have to drive miles in between the reactors or miles between the reactors and the processing canyons, and they see the size of these facilities, and they see the the extent of the burial grounds and how how much land is covered by these burial grounds, it really only then seems to I think connect with a lot of people that this is really a huge huge undertaking. They really did create an enormous mess during those 45 years of plutonium production. So um, you know we all thought we'd be a lot farther along by now, even though you know the 30 year cleanup schedule. I don't know that everyone thought things would be done in 30 years. We all certainly thought we'd be a lot farther along, especially in terms of the tank waste treatment. You know, when the when the tri-party agreement was signed in 1989, tank waste treatment was supposed to start in 10 years. A year later, it was already be the, the first of what became many, many, many delays for that project. And What's really ironic right now is we are closer to the beginning of tank waste treatment in Hanford than we've ever been. We may be only a couple of years away from the start of vitrifying some of that tank waste and turning it into glass. At the same time, when you look at the entirety of the tank waste treatment mission, what it will take to get it all done, I don't think we've ever looked at the prospect of it lasting longer than it looks to be now. Uh, some of the scenarios run well into the 2100s in terms of completion of that treatment mission. If Congress continues to fund it, if the Department of Energy continues forward with, with the plans that they've made. So it's really strange to see the beginning of this 30 year effort to begin to treat some Hanford tank waste and then know it's not gonna come quickly after that, the completion. You know, I can really, I can really vouch for what you said a moment ago about going to Hanford for the first time and seeing it in person. I got to go a few years ago, and uh, it was 
astounding how large it is, how many people work there, um, some of the conditions that they're working in. I think you teased me a little bit because I was saying how hot it was in May and I was seeing these workers working inside buildings that don't have air conditioning yet because they're still under construction. And, you know, they're fully clothed in personal protective equipment and they're working with welding equipment and things like that. And I was sitting there wishing I had a nice air conditioned office to sit in. And it's really incredible the amount of work that's going into it and what's already been done. The pump and treat facility is really incredible. It was really eye-opening to go to B Reactor and see what has now become a national park where people can go and see this history in action and just how massive the reactor itself is. It's just, it's a really important piece of history that lives on because it did create such a giant mess. It, it really is some, um, it, it is eye-opening to see it and, and the working conditions, um, are, are very difficult. You know, it is a, it is desert and it's, it gets hot in the summer and it gets cold in the winter. And a lot of this work is outdoors in the baking sun, wearing, as you said, you know, heavy protective equipment and maybe toting around an air tank on your back. And it, it makes it that much more difficult to do that job. So you've talked about the last 30 years. If you could see into the future 30 years from now, where do you think we'll be? What do you think that those who come after you and do this important work should focus on for Oregon or for beyond Oregon? You know, my, uh, <laughs> my magic ball is, is completely cloudy. I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in the next 30 years. I think in the short term, we will see the start of tank waste treatment, but beyond that, I don't know it, it, um, to really expand the tank waste treatment will take a far greater amount of funding than the site has ever received. And with the, you know, the, the year by year restrictions that there have been just in terms of funding. And then you look at the, the economic condition that the country is in right now with the COVID relief and uh, all the money that's gone towards that and the loss of jobs and everything else. Uh, it's it's hard to believe that Congress is going to be able to increase Hanford's funding substantially in the in the near term, and that's really what it means. There's a lot of work left to do. There is has been a lot of effort in recent years to uh, look for shortcuts, if you will, and other alternative ideas. And you know we're certainly open to evaluating those things. Uh, in the past, they really haven't panned out. In the past, I think we've lost a lot of time and spent a lot of money on ideas that just didn't really pan out. They weren't as protective as, as people need them to be or want them to be. So just where we're going to go, I, I just don't know. And in terms of the focus that Oregon needs to maintain and really the public needs to maintain, is just making sure that the short-term need doesn't get in the way of, of really long-term protectiveness because those are, those are trade-offs you really don't want to be making. You don't want to be compromising the potential safety of the Columbia River, you know, 200 years from now or 500 years from now. And, and really a lot of this is long-term and 
you can't really define when the period necessarily would be. But you need to keep that long-term focus for what the potential impacts could be. We've had a lot of discussion just, you know, within our agency, within the collective Hanford community, if you will, about, um, you know, how do you keep people engaged? How do you keep the public engaged? Uh, this has been going on for, you know, 30 years plus, you know, it was building up several years before that when, when the public really began to get an idea of what the situation was in Hanford going back to 1986. And it's hard to keep a, a sense of interest and a sense of, in, of, uh, of urgency over a multi-decade period. Yet, that's what we need to have done and that's what we need to do moving forward. We do need new people to become engaged and interested and involved. We've lost some people that at the very beginning, you know, were, were very outspoken and, and dedicated a lot of their time and energy towards making sure people understood what the risks were at Hanford. We've had some young people step in and, and take on that uh, that charge, but uh, we're going to need more. Uh, we're going to need more soon, and we're going to need more later. Given that there's no crystal ball and that we don't know for sure where we'll be in 30 years, and this need for the next generation of Oregonians to get involved and to care about this cleanup, where would you suggest they start? Well, there is, uh, there's obviously a lot of information on the web. There's a lot of information on our website. There are public meetings once, once we get through COVID. Uh, hopefully there will be a resumption of public meetings that occur in Portland and Hood River most often when they're in Oregon. Uh, there's, uh, we have an Oregon Hand for Cleanup Board, which has 10 citizen members, and there are occasionally openings that uh, people could apply through the governor's office. There's a regional board called the Hanford Advisory Board, which uh, has public at large representatives. Uh, those are some of the ways to be engaged. I think it begins with educating yourself a little bit about what, what Hanford really is, because still, you know, I just will be talking to people and they'll mention what I do or what I've been doing and ask if they, they've usually heard of Hanford, but beyond that, the majority of people that I interact with for the first time on that have no idea what, what Hanford was or what's up there or what's still going on. So, you know, take a little time, take a little effort and, and read about it. The, the history is just absolutely fascinating. I, I just even, you know, 31 years working on this and, and still learning every day some things about Hanford and it never, it never got old. It's, it's a fascinating place and, with fascinating problems ahead. That's for sure. Well, I think it goes without saying that you're going to be so missed at the agency and beyond the agency, you know, with the many people you've worked with over the years for the Hanford cleanup, for emergency preparedness in general, um, at Trojan. So, you know, thank you for giving just a little bit more of your time to send one more message in this podcast to your fellow Oregonians. Thanks, Jenny. Well-grounded listeners, that's a wrap for Ken Niles at the Oregon Department of Energy. I hope Oregonians will join me in thanking Ken for his many years of experience and service to our state. Check out our blog, energyinfo.oregon.gov, to see photos and find links about the Hanford cleanup and Odo's other work. I've been your host, Jenny Kalas. 
For our future episodes, we'll introduce you to a new host and a new series of fun energy stories from around the state. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Please email askenergy at oregon.gov. All episodes of Grounded are available on soundcloud.com slash oregonenergy. Subscribe to Grounded on your favorite podcast app, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Thanks for listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy.